to the to the book of Job. That's where we're going to be today, the book of Job. We're covering a large swath of text today. I usually don't do this. I don't like doing this necessarily, but uh, it all connects really well, so I want us to see it all together. Uh, we're going to be covering from chapter 8 to chapter 10. Uh, and be sure to have notes in front of you, because like I said, we're going to be covering a lot today. Um, so there's notes in the back if you want to grab those. But um, So we'll be in Job chapter 8, and I'm going to go ahead and just read for us uh, Job 8, and I'll read verses 20 through 9-3. So it should be on the screen if you don't have it. And just as a clarification before I do this, I'm going to be out of multiple translations today. Uh, we're going to be referencing multiple different translations. So if if what you're seeing in front of you is not what I'm saying or what's on the screen, just know that's what's going on. Uh, but I'm reading out of the ESV and a bunch of different ones. But Job chapter 8, this, this is the word of the Lord. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. Yet he, he will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you, you you will be clothed. Those you, those who hate you, will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will not will be no more. Then Job answered and said, "Truly, I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wishes to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand. Let's pray." Father, this is your word, and Lord, though we normally wouldn't come here ourselves to to read and to understand, I ask, Lord, right now that you'd bless our time, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are prepared to be shaped by your word. Do this in us, we pray. Reveal, make known to us the Lord Jesus from this text, we pray that we may see and may behold and we may have life in his name. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. The title for today is a, re- is a $3 word, but it's a, good, it's a good word. The incomprehensible God understanding the unfathomable. The incomprehensible God understanding the unfathomable. Now, it's important just to, just to say, as by way of reminder, where we've been in the book of Job. We've, we've seen at the very beginning of Job, Job was a man who had his life all together. He was this quintessential man of the East, and God took everything from him. He allowed Satan to take everything from him, everything physically from him. Then he allowed him to take his health. And the last time we saw Job talking by himself, was he was sitting on a garbage heap, being verbally assaulted from his friends, okay? So that's where we see Job. And we're picking up with the second cycle today of his second friend. So last week, or two weeks ago, or however many weeks ago, we saw Eliphaz the elder, this older guy that came to Job to give him wisdom. But today starts the second cycle of friends. And just know I'm sparing you <laughs> two other cycles. So we're only covering the first cycle of each of them. Okay, so we're seeing Eliphaz, we're going to see Bildad, and then we'll see Zophar. 
but I'm sparing you two other cycles, okay? So they do this for like another 30 chapters. But what I want you to see um, today, and let me, maybe I'll just ask this by way of a question. So have you ever thought that you were so right about something and turned out to be wrong? No. <laughs> People, we don't do that, right? I mean, not like, not like a little wrong, though. I mean, like really, really wrong. Uh, there was a there was a situation one time we were we were driving in Canada, and I'd been to the location before where we were going, uh, and I was the one driving, and the GPS wasn't working in the moment. But I was like, it's okay, guys. I know how to get there, right? How many times could we each tell a story like this? But I think me, especially, this was one that I was like, oh yeah, we're on the right road. And in Canada, you can't see like really, ultimately all the roads look the same. That's, that's what it boils down to. And I thought we were going in the right direction. We drove for two hours. And I'm like, oh yeah, we're going great. And I see a sign that's like showing where we're at, and I'm like, ah. Oh. So we had to backtrack, and I had to eat a big old slice of humble pie and be like, guys, I was wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, so maybe I mean, we all could probably tell stories like that, but we're introduced to a, to a guy today who, who's telling Job, he's coming to Job, trying to be his friend, and he's really bringing him unhelpful wisdom. And I'm, I'm calling him, in, in verse 1, you can see in chapter 8, he says, then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, now I'm calling Bildad, I want to label Bildad as Bildad, Bildad the Brute, okay? So that's, that's kind of what Bildad's role is. Uh, his name is very fitting, his name literally means son of contention, okay? So he's he, it fits. Uh, he's son of contention. He's Bildad the brute. He's gruff and he's mean to Job. You need to remember where Job is at. Job has just experienced everything he owned destroyed. His whole life, he's, he's literally sitting on an ash heap. He, in, in sickness, his family's gone, his friends are gone, and now his friends are coming to him and saying, basically, this is what Job asks. So Bildad, Bildad's response and his response is, is simply, uh, is God unjust? Is God unjust? This is what he asks in verse 2. He says, how long will you speak these things, seeing the words of your mouth are like a great wind? Basically, Bildad's tired of hearing from Job. He's tired of hearing from Job, and he, he, he equates what Job's saying to as a great wind. P- picture, picture with me. Someone you know in your life that when they speak, they're wrong, and, and they just really kind of annoy you when they speak. That's what Bildad's saying right here. He's basically saying, Job, you're wrong. Just, just shut up. Please just be quiet. <laughs> and this is what he says. He asks Job a question. He says, does God pervert justice? Or does the, verse 3, or does the Almighty pervert the right? And his question is very simple to Job. Is God unjust? And the answer is, of course not. Of course he's not unjust. And, and Bildad is just simply asking Job, do you, do you really think that God's unjust? Do you really think that God is not fair? And now he goes to cite, look at verse 4. This is what Bildad says. This is why he says God's not fair. He says, now remember, Job is upright. We've seen all throughout this book, God declaring of Job, he has not sinned. Okay, we need to continue to remind ourselves of that. But listen to what Bildad's telling him. He says, your children must have sinned against him, so their punishment was well-deserved. Okay, remember what, remember what we're seeing. Job is sitting there on an ash heap, has just lost his whole family, 
And Bildad comes to him and says, your children must have sinned against him, so their punishment was well-deserved. Verse 5, but if you pray to God and seek favor of the Almighty, and if you are pure and live with integrity, he will surely rise up and restore your happy home. Basically, he's saying, all this has happened to you, Job, because your kids sinned. And oh yeah, you've probably sinned too, but just not to the same degree that they have, because you're still alive. For Bildad, Bildad's theology is very simple. It's good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. So he looks at the bad situation, and he says, you must be bad. Of course, obviously. And what's funny in verse 7, look at what he says in verse 7. And he says, though your beginnings were small, your latter days will be great. Bildad doesn't know it, but he's saying something very, very true that he ironically doesn't know is true. (laughs) That in the end, if you read the end of the book, we see God actually restore Job. But it's not because Job was bad. Listen to Bildad's plea. His plea is, just like Eliphaz, just ask tradition. Just ask tradition. Remembering the wise. And he pleads with him. Listen to what he says in verse 8. He says, just ask the previous generation. Pay attention to the experience of our ancestors. For we were born but yesterday and know nothing. So listen to even how humble he's trying to be. Job, Job, we, we know nothing. We're so young. Listen to the people of old. And he says in verse 9, Our days on earth are as fleeting as a shadow, but those who came before us will teach you. They will teach you the wisdom of old. Now, now Bildad is very similar to Eliphaz in this way. He's just a lot more blunt than Eliphaz was. Eliphaz was kind. He was gentle with him. But Bildad's coming along and saying, just, just get over it. All your sin, everything that's bad in your life, that's because of what you've done. And listen to what he gives two examples then. He gives a negative example of what he calls the wicked plant, what I'm calling the wicked plant, what he says in verse 11 of chapter 8. He says, can papyrus grow where there's no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there's no water? And he, he goes on and he says, verse 13, such are the paths of all who forget God. But the, or then he says, the hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed. His trust is a spider's web. Basically, he's saying, again, very simply, he's saying, flowers don't grow where there's no water. So I can see the fruit, and the fruit, that's what he's saying, basically. I can see the fruit of your life, Job, and I can tell that you're not, you're not right with God. That's the problem here. Now he gives a positive example, verse, verse uh, 16 through 19. He says, He is a lush plant before the sun, and his shoots spread over his garden. And again, now Bildad's picking up the kind of a, a theme that, that David talks about elsewhere, he says, where he is like a tree, talking about the righteous man, verse Psalm 1. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And Bildad's basically saying, do you see that, Job? Do you see that the righteous, they prosper? Look at your life. That means you're not prospering. Now, we ask, need to ask a question. And now notice, real quick before we move on from Bildad, look at verse 20, what he says. I think this is a very interesting statement. He says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. Now, I have a question. Is this true? Because here's the thing, if what Bildad is saying is true, there is no undeserving sinners or sufferers in the universe. If what Bildad is saying is true, then every bit of suffering you have ever experienced is a result of your sin. I want to say that one more time. 
If what he's saying is true, then everything that has ever happened bad to you is a result of your sin. I want you to realize the implications of all that. And I want you to notice at this point, too, that Bildad is actually very similar to Eliphaz. The vast majority of people that you and I know hold a very similar line of reasoning. I'm living a good life. Why? Everything's going good for me. So, so if everything's going good for me, then I must be okay. Everything's going good for me, so that means my life's okay. I'm right. Or I'm living a good life, so I must be walking the right path. And brothers and sisters, that is fundamentally not true. We, the world does not work like a cosmic slot machine where we, we put good in and we get good out. We pull the lever, good comes out. Bildad's theology here is fundamentally without grace. Bildad's theology here, and basically we, we see his assertion, Bildad's assertion. He's basically saying in verses 20 through 22, this is the way. He says, behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. I want you to notice what he says. God will not reject a blameless man. If that's true, you can throw away the gospel. If that's true, that God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of sinners and evildoers, then that means we're done for. We're, we're cooked. Because that means that God cannot and will not take hold of our hand. And that's a bad, that's very, 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 very bad. Because the gospel, in the gospel, you can basically take verse 20, flip it on his head, and that's the gospel. <laughs> so basically, God has rejected a blameless man and taken hold of sinners' hands. That's the good news of the gospel, is that in Jesus Christ, God has rejected His Son on our behalf, and He's taken hold of the hand of sinners in place of His blameless, righteous Son. But, but before, I, so that's just Bildad, okay? This is Bildad's response, Bildad the brute. And I want to I go to Job's response, and I want to bring up a doctrine that is typically not talked about ever. But it's the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility. And that, like I said, that's a $3 word. And it's basically what I'm calling the godness of God. It's God's incomprehensibility. And there should be, yeah, there it is. So if, if we take the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility, there's really two ditches on either side of this. Basically, the first ditch is what I'm calling deism. Is that God is completely unknowable. Okay, and this is, again, what, where many people land in our own society. God is just unknowable. We cannot know him. He's far and removed from us. There's no revelation, no incarnation, basically nothing. God, God is removed from sinners in that way. But then there's another side, which is actually where Bildad lands, is that God is exhaustively knowable. And I'm calling this idolatry. Okay, because if God is completely knowable, if we can somehow know God fully, then, then I would argue it's a very, very small God. For the finite to know the infinite, it's, it's not possible. God is the creator, we are the creature. And so, so these are the two sides of the ditch. And I would argue this very simple point, that God is truly knowable, but he's not exhaustively knowable. And this is really what Bildad's wrestling with. So if you get nothing else today, get this. It's at the top of your notes. Since God is incomprehensible, we cannot know him exhaustively. 
but we can trust that God is truly knowable in His Son. And that's a really good news. Job, we're we're diving in to see what Job now responds with, and he's really wrestling at some level with this idea of incomprehensibility. He does not understand what's happening to him. He doesn't know why it's this way. Listen to what Job then says. Then Job spoke again, verse 1 of chapter 9. He says, yes, I know all this is true in principle. So again, we even see Job respond with, I know that's how I used to think, but he's like, my theological categories are just being blown right now because I didn't do anything wrong. But then listen to what he asks. But how can a person be declared innocent in God's sight? Again, the book of Job doesn't give us answers to this. This is why when people just look at the book of Job, they look down and they see it and they're like, look at all these questions. It doesn't answer suffering in that way. But when we look at the book of Job, it gives us many, 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 many questions that only find their answer in Jesus Christ. So Job firmly held that conviction, what Bildad just said. But it doesn't square up. It doesn't square up. And as we've heard Job's speech, we need to keep in mind, as we hear Job's speech, we're going to hear things from Job's mouth that at some level I would argue are not right. They're not true. And the reason why is that Job's perception is all over the place. I want you to look at this image. I like, I like images. So, I don't know if you're like me. So picture the yellow being God's perspective at some level, or God's given identity to him. Job, in this moment, because of the suffering he's, he's experiencing, is not in line with what God's doing. So if you picture God's, who God is as the yellow, Job is this circle that's like buzzing all over it. And he can't, he, he's, he's struggling through, what's God doing? And if you've ever suffered in any capacity, you know that feeling. You know that feeling of, you know what's true, but everything around you is like pushing you elsewhere. And so, as Christopher Ash says, I think he says it really well, he says, we hear in these speeches the honest grapplings of a real believer with a heart for God as he sees what he thought was a secure worldview crumble around him. I want to say that one more time. As he sees what he thought was a secure worldview crumble around him. This is why we hear Job say things that are plain wrong. And yet we hear him, and yet we hear him say them from a heart that is deeply right. Okay, so this chapter 9 is really Job's pursuit of litigation. Okay, Job's pursuit of litigation. And litigation is simply the process of just taking legal action. He doesn't know why this is happening. He knows that he didn't do anything wrong, but he's going to come before God and seek justice. So Job recognizes that God is the ultimate cause behind all things, which is good and right. He's not blaming God with evil, which is good and right. But he also knows that since God is good and right, then it would be like standing before the sun to come before him which is where we see the futility of litigation, the futility or or the foolishness, the utter folly of coming before God and saying, even if I'm right, I can't stand before you. Listen to what he says in verse 3 and 4. He says, if one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Job is basically saying, 
I have no hope in contending with the Almighty. I have no hope. Who can bring any charge against God? Even if I was correct, how could, he, how could I contend? And Job gives several reasons. Here's the reasons he gives for his futility. Here's the first. It's God's creative ability. Listen to what he says in verses 5 through 10. He's talking about God. He's talking about why it would be foolish to come before him. He says, without warning, he moves the mountains, overturning them in anger. He shakes the earth from its place, and its foundations tremble. If he commands it, the sun won't rise and the stars won't shine. So you can see Job saying the one who literally makes the sun to rise every morning and the stars to even shine, how do I think I can bring anything before him? How can I contend with the one who formed the heavens? He goes on in verse 9. He says, he made all the stars, the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the southern sky. He does great things too marvelous to understand. And he performs countless miracles. And Job's essentially saying, I don't have a chance. Even if I was in the right, it, I, I couldn't bring anything before him in that way. Which then he talks about God's elusive presence. So this is the second reason for, the, for why I'd be foolish. He says in verse 11, he says, Yet when he comes near, I cannot see him. When he moves by, I do not see him go. If he snatches someone in death, who can stop him? Who dares to ask, what are you doing? And God does not restrain his anger. Even the monsters of the sea are crushed beneath his feet. And Job's essentially just saying, I do not understand what God's doing. I do not understand what God's doing. And if you've ever suffered for 30 seconds, you know that's the first thought that comes to you. I don't know why this is happening. And Job's wrestling with that. What does it mean? I didn't do anything wrong here. Why is this happening to me? Paul picks up this same logic in Romans 9. He says, you will see, this is Romans 9, 19 through 21. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Then listen to what he questions from Job. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And Job's wrestling with the same idea. He's wrestling with these same things. He's saying, I am the creature. You are the creator. I have no ability to stand before you. One one early church father, he says this. He says, no one has yet breathed the whole air nor has any mind entirely comprehended or speech exhaustively contained the being of God. And that's it. This is what Job's wrestling with. He can't understand what God's doing. And then he talks about the hopelessness of litigation. This is what he says in verse 14. He says, "Then How then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. And brothers and sisters, if this has ever been you in a face of suffering, then you know this feeling of even if I called out, even if you were standing right here, I could call out to you and you wouldn't hear me. I don't think you'd even listen to me. Exodus 33, Moses, in another place, listen to what the Lord says to him. 
Moses asks the Lord, he says, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness, this is the Lord, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the, the name, my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, this is the Lord, you cannot see my face for man shall not live, shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand in the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And brothers and sisters, this is what Job's wrestling with. He's, he's calling out, he's asking for God to send an advocate, because he just does not, he cannot He's the creator, God's the creator, he's the creature, and he is, it's impossible. The pursuit that he's asking for is impossible. It's the impossible pursuit, which is the next section. And then we're going to move into some questioning, and then we'll conclude uh, with, with Christ, and we'll see how this directs us to him. The impossible pursuit. Think about how often, though, before we go into this, when something terrible happens, take, take for instance, uh, a family member or a friend that you've known and loved begins to take a terrible path. They begin to go in a direction that's really harmful for themselves. And I think we've all experienced this at some level. And immediately when something like this happens, we begin questioning, well, how did we get here? What did I do wrong? What, what should I have done? Why is this happening? And so many why questions. Why, Lord? Why, 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 why is this happening to me? One author, he says, you pound on why because you think the answer reveals the mysterious, mysterious virus causing the problems. You think, if I had obeyed God, this wouldn't be happening. You ask relentless questions and look for what you may have missed. It ends with a collapsed with you into a collapsed heap, exhausted and defeated by the questions. And this is where Job's ending himself. This is, where, this is where he's going in this direction. And he asks the Lord, why are you indifferent? Verse 21, he says, I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? And Job's just essentially asking, Lord, if you're not in charge, then who is? Who, who is? I, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why you're indifferent right now. And then he asks a question that begs an answer, just like Bildad's question begs an answer. It's basically, why can't I have an arbiter? Or why can't I have one who will stand between me and you? He, he asks in verse 32 of chapter 9. He says, for he, that is God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. He says, there is no, verse 33, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me. Let, let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so myself. 
Job knew what everyone whose face is suffering begins to know very quickly. That we, as people, are desperately frail, and we're desperately weak, and we're desperately in need of help. Because of sin in humanity, we cannot approach God with confidence. And Job's wrestling with this tension. He's saying, if God is sovereign, which he is, he acknowledges it. If God is just, which he is, he acknowledges it. And Job knows he didn't do anything wrong to deserve this. Then there must be a way for him to be made right. Job concludes then there must be someone to stand before God who will speak on Job's behalf. What Bildad completely missed, and what Job is is not just longing for, he's begging for, he's pleading for, is a mediator. He's begging for grace. And I want you to see real quick, just we'll walk through Job's final lament, and then I'll come back to this point. So Job's lament before God, just listen to it. This is the heart of a believer. I want to remind you again. Because I think sometimes we think, oh, when, when, people should, when Christians lament, they lament kind of like this. They lament and say, Lord, this kind of sucks. I wish you'd fix this, but you're good. I want you to listen to his lamenting. He says, why? The, verse, the first section is, why are you against me? Verses 10, 1 through 3 of chapter 10. He says, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. That, that bit, the word bitterness, that's, that's like the sorrow of my soul. And he says, verse 2, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Don't let me know why you contend against me. And Job just can't figure it out. Why are you doing this? Look at what he says in verse 4. Basically, this next section is, why do you watch over me? Or why do you watch me? He says, are your eyes, verse 4, are your eyes like those of a human? Do you see things as people see them? Is your lifetime only as, as long as ours? Is your life so short that you must quickly probe for my guilt and search for my sin? Why, why do you watch me? And thirdly, why did you create me? These are the questions of a believer. These are not the questions of some, somebody that's, that's, that's apostate. We're talking about somebody that's a Christian, that'd be a believer. He's faithful. Verse 8 your hands have fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? And then verse 18, this last section is, why don't you just kill me? Why don't you just get rid of me? Now, I want to be clear. Job's not trying to, he's not suicidal in this moment, but what he's saying is, listen to what he says. He says, why did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I have died before my eyes had seen me? And, and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. In this last section, this last chapter even, it makes us very uncomfortable. And it should. It's meant to make us very uncomfortable. It's meant to bother us. But what I want you to notice, like I've noticed, like I've brought up every time we see any lament, is lament is simply complaint vertically. Okay, Job's not sitting here in the sorrow of his own soul. He's always speaking upward. All his speaking is upward toward God. And Job may be wrong in some of his perceptions, but he's deeply correct in the direction he's facing. And that's the important part I want you to see. Now, Bildad and Job both bring up a really important question. 
want you just to listen to what Bill Dad, Bill Dad said there. Go back to what he said in chapter 8:20. He says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of an evildoer. And then listen to the questions that Job asks. He says, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? And then verse 33, he says, There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. And what they're both, what, jo- what Bildad had no clue of and completely missed, Bildad, Job is longing for. And he's longing for this last point, which is we need a mediator. One to touch God and to touch man. We need a mediator. Over and over again in these chapters, Bildad and Job ask these questions. But the book of Job is silent. It asks questions and gives no answers. And honestly, that's what suffering is meant to do to us. It asks questions and gives no answers. But when we live on this side of the cross, we live as Christians, we live as those who've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we as Christians know who this mediator that Job longed for is. We know who he is, and in the face of suffering, brothers and sisters, it's not just that we get to cling to him, we can cling to him. Let's know what 1 Timothy says. 1 Timothy 2, like we heard read this morning, 5 through 7, he says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Christ's suffering brings meaning to ours. It doesn't, it doesn't answer all the questions. It doesn't, it doesn't fix everything like a Band-Aid. But Christ's sufferings brings meaning to our own. People will stand and ask, why, why, would, a, why would a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? And they should ask, why would a good God allow any wicked people to even exist at all? And it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's in this fact that God has sent His Son to be the mediator between God, to touch God and touch man. That's what Job's longing for. And that's what all of our suffering desperately needs. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. C.J. Mahaney, he goes on and he says, only someone who is both fully divine and truly human can effectively mediate between God and men. And Jesus is exactly that one. The God-man, Jesus Christ, is the one who Job desperately longed for. He's the one who touches both God and man. He's the one who mediates between us by his spirit the one who Bildad had no concept of, and the one who Job longed for is here. Christ's suffering brings meaning to our own. And there's really only then one question to ask. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know that the one who is the one who mediates between God and man? As John Frame says, he says, the more we know, the more our sense of wonder ought to increase. So what he's saying is, the more we know God in the face of Jesus Christ, the more our sense of wonder ought to increase. 
Because increased knowledge brings us into a greater contact, contact with the incomprehensibility of God. I used to think that one day in eternity, it would just be like one ginormous worship service forever. But I think as I've grown as a Christian, I think I've started realizing more and more that for eternity, brothers and sisters, we will grow in our knowledge of who God is. If God is the infinite one and we are the finite ones, that means that we will never be infinite in that sense. We will forever be learning more about who God is. From, the, from now into the depths of eternity, we will be learning more about who God is. And brothers and sisters, if that's not appeasing to you, I don't know if you know him. I don't know if you know him because since God is incomprehensible, we cannot know him exhaustively, but we can trust that in his son, he's truly knowable. If that's not appealing to you, I would encourage you just to check your own heart before the Lord. And, and brothers and sisters, when, when we find ourselves in suffering, to know that Christ's suffering brings meaning to our own is a great reward. It's a great joy that we have a mediator who touches God and touches man, the man, Jesus Christ. So we're going to turn now and take communion. And as we do so, I just want to remind you of our mediator. I want to remind you of the one who touches God and touches man in that sense. That as we take the supper, the Lord's Supper, like we heard from Jesus this morning in Matthew 9, is not for the righteous. It's for sinners. The the Lord's table simultaneously does two things. It reminds us that we're in need of saving something to save us. And the fact that it's here and it's present is a reminder that the salvation has come. And as we take the bread, I I just want to encourage you, uh, I want to, here, listen to Paul's warning. Just listen to his warning. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So I just want to be clear that unworthy manner would be anybody, if you're not a Christian here today, just just don't take the Lord's Supper. As it comes by, just, just let it pass. The other way I, would, I want you to consider the, the, that un, un, in an unworthy manner is that you need to check and see truly if you are a Christian. If that last question we talked about, if the, you're not hungering to know Christ for eternity in that sense, not some heavenly picture where we see everybody that we love that's passed on, but where Christ is, that's where we will be. If that's not appealing to you, I would encourage you just to let the Lord's Supper pass. Because by faith, what we're saying as we take the bread and as we take the cup is this is, by faith, I'm taking this. By faith, I am believing that Christ has died for me. So he says, let a person examine himself first, and then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So I just encourage you today, this, this table is not for the righteous. This table is not for if you had a bad week just to let it but go by. This table is an opportunity to repent and to trust Christ afresh and anew. So as we, as we take of the cup and as we take of the bread, just remember that. Remember Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and this is for us. So if the deacons could come forward and we'll pass the cups.